Show MTR Radio Network back to hour two, taking you right up until Newark Bears baseball, up until Newark Bears baseball, right here on MTR Radio. I'm going to be joined in a little bit by former uh, Blue Jays pitcher Phil Huffman. I definitely think it's a good interview coming up. Excuse me, and uh, definitely going to get you ready for next week, where we'll have Chris Duffy on. I'm going to uh, let you know, guys know about any other guests we have coming on the show, and if you follow the past ball show. You've seen it. I got guests coming on every week, and there's always something, and I'm definitely going to have some interesting guests, certainly some more, some bigger guests than you may think. So uh, definitely tune in. Check out mtrmedia.com, mtrradio.com, as well as johnpielli.com to keep yourself all informed on everything going on. want to throw another shout-out. Uh, if you're on Facebook, check out the johnpielli.com page. Throw your likes in there. We definitely want to get that up a little more. Show your support. Um, you guys obviously have done a great job showing the support of your show, and I appreciate everybody that does tune in at a past ball show. And hopefully, uh, you know, this is, uh, listen, I mean, I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing. You know, there's ways to contact me. Throw your feedback in any way possible. You know, let me know what you think. I mean, is there anybody you want to hear on the show? Let me know. But uh, moving on, we talked about Granky. We talked about the Miami Marlins fire sale. Um if you check in, and I'm going to throw a little, uh, I'm going to throw a little intro to this segment. Bases empty blog. We're going to do a recap. Maybe not. Apologize for that. Bad job. Definitely connection issue, but we'll try it again. Bases empty blog. Go ahead, laugh, laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. So this portion of the program brought to you by JohnPielli.com, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Those of you who follow my daily blog postings on the Bases Empty Blog on my JohnPielli.com website will see that today. I was talking about the anniversary of a trade, which a lot of people said was an example of a team just giving their better players to a team like the New York Yankees for nothing. And the criticism in 2008 of the trade, which sent Xavier Nady and Damaso Marte to the New York Yankees for a couple prospects, actually is turning out in favor of the Pirates. And for those of you who haven't followed it, Nady obviously had the injury next year to the Yankees, who missed the playoffs in 2008 for the first time in many, many years. And then, uh, of course, the 2009 season, Nady getting hurt, not being a factor in the playoffs, even though they won the World Series in 2009. Let's, let's do a rating of the trade. What do you guys think of the Nady-Damaso-Marte trade to the, to the Yankees? If you don't remember, the Pittsburgh Pirates got four players – all have played in the major leagues for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and three of them are going to be part of the future of this team. The Pirates added Jose Tabata, who may not be an everyday outfielder. He may be a fourth outfielder. He may be a platoon player, but he's going to be with the Pirates for a while. 
Daniel McCutcheon, I know he's out for the season. He did a, do a very good job last year pitching in 70-plus games for them. And, of course, Jeff Carstens, who, while he's been healthy, has done a pretty good job for them also. And those are all interesting things to consider when we're analyzing this trade. Because all I kept hearing was how the Pirates were just giving their good players to the Yankees for nothing. And it, the trade, honestly, has turned out to be in the Pittsburgh Pirates' favor. And, uh, you know, i got some numbers here. Carstens has been hurt this year, 3-2, 352 ERA, and 8 starts. Had a good year last year. He was an innings eater. He's a guy that could definitely help them out in the back of the rotation. And if you look at McCutcheon for what he did as a reliever last year, if he could regain form next year, I think that'll be a very good acquisition. And Tabata, even if he becomes a fourth outfielder, I don't think he's going to be a superstar player. He's not Andrew McCutcheon here. But he's going to be a decent player. I think the Pirates made out pretty well here. And everybody who said the Pirates were clueless, they're always looking to get rid of all their best players, I think they finally invested in making this team better. This is a team that's not selling anymore. This is a team up at the top of the division in second place behind the Cincinnati Reds, right there in the thick of things. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see. I'm going to put that thought on hold. Right now I'm going to be joined by former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Phil Huffman. Phil, you there, buddy? It's John Piel here. How you doing? Phil Huffman, waiting for John. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Thanks for calling in today. What do you got going right now? Uh, actually, we're just uh, starting up the second hour. We're gonna uh, This network's got uh, coverage up until Newark Bears baseball, which is going to be live on the network starting at 7 o'clock today. Oh, perfect. So uh, welcome aboard. First of all, I want to thank you for having a couple minutes today. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been great talking to you so far. I'm glad to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. And no problem, man. And now I'm going back to your career. Obviously, your career really is summarized in one season, and that was the 1979 Toronto Blue Jays season, a team that went 53-109, and 109, a team that, you know, obviously was only a couple of years in existence after being an expansion team. And there you are, essentially getting the ball every fifth day. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about how that season went. Obviously, you know, things didn't go well that season. But tell us a little bit of firsthand perspective about the 1979 Toronto Blue Jays. I will. And that's a good question. Uh, I went into spring training in 1979 as a non-rostered player and uh, had the opportunity. They gave me the ball. I pitched 26 innings in spring training and, and made the club. And... Uh, you know, it was a pretty amazing feat. I mean, two years out of high school. Uh, but, uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to give it to me. Yeah, we went 53 and 109, but we went out there every day, and, we, you know, we tried to do our best. And, you know, we were a young ball club. But, uh, you know, it was a good time. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, how does it feel? I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, now, correct me if I'm wrong, you were 21 at the time, right, when you made your major league debut? Well, actually not, John. I was 20 years old. Oh, wow. I didn't turn 21 until midway through the season in June. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so how, how did that feel? Like, I mean, obviously you came into spring training. You, you know, you're, you're drafted by, you know, uh, I believe, let me just check real quick. Was it San Francisco you were drafted by? And then you, yeah. moved, you moved around, I believe, to, uh, to Oakland and the Vita Blue trade. And then you ended up going to the Blue Jays along with Willie Horton for a guy who turns out to be your teammate in 1979, Rico Cardi. 
That's exactly right. I mean, it was a whirlwind. I mean, when the when I was being scouted, uh, I thought it was either going to be like the Cincinnati Reds. They scouted me really hard. Uh, but they end up, I mean, Vita Blue was my idol when I was growing up. Wow. And uh, to be in a trade with him when the, I went to the Pioneer League with the Giants when they drafted me in the second round. And, uh, you know, come to find out I was in a trade with myself and six other players for Vita Blue and, I don't know, a couple hundred or three hundred thousand dollars. And it was pretty amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I got moved around quite a bit there in my early, early stages. All right, so now, now moving on, as you come into the season, you make the team out of spring training. Do you feel – Say that again. Nah, Say said, that again, John. I, I lost that. I apologize. As you, as, you move, as you move into the 1979 season, of course you make the team in spring training. You're essentially given the ball, what, every fifth day or so for the entire season. Tell us a little bit about how the season goes, what your interpretation of how – I know you said everybody played hard and gave it their best. Tell us how the season was going on for you as a pitcher that's getting the ball every fifth day. Well, I could do that. Uh, you know, when I first started out, I had my – it just happened to be on my rotation that I was going to start my first major league game at Comiskey Park on their opening day. And, uh, you know, Roy Hartsfield was the manager back at the time. He called me in the office and he goes, Phil, we didn't really plan it to be this way for their opening day. You know, just try to be calm, be patient. Uh, I was so excited. I flew my dad out from Texas. And uh, I was really nervous. There was like 52,000 people. And uh, as soon as I got, as soon as I threw the first pitch, you know, I felt a whole lot comfortable. And uh, that was a, you know, it was a really good game. I think we won like 10 to 2. And. We went to the next game, and then I was 2-0. and I'm thinking at 20 years old, I'm going, this stuff is easy. And I think uh, my next six starts, I was 0 for 6. But, uh, we, you know, like I told you earlier, you know, we tried hard. Uh, I didn't miss a start. I had 31 starts that year. I was doing my best. We were a young team. Uh, we didn't produce a lot of runs. Uh, if I can remember correctly, I think I had eight no decisions. So that you know, I went six and eighteen. I think I led the league in losses that year. But those, I think the eight no decisions that I had, you know, they could have been victories. But uh, you know, it is what it is. But uh, hey, we put our pants on every day. We went out there and we played hard. Now there's and, no uh, question about it. You guys, you guys definitely did. I mean, you know, unfortunately, some some sometimes it just doesn't work out for you. You know, as as your season's going on, obviously, you know, you you did go through some struggles. Was there any point of the season that you were actually worried about, you know, maybe getting sent down, you know, maybe because of the mounting losses, if nothing else? No, I don't think so. I mean, Roy Hartsfield and uh, Bob Miller, our pitching coach, he had, you know, he had a, all the confidence in the world in me. And they, and Peter Rivasi, the general manager, you know, they were going to give me the ball every five days regardless. And uh, so I just, you know, I just went out and tried to do my deal and, you know, I'd, if they were going to send me down, they would, but it didn't happen. But, uh, you know, I, I I love this game, and I just went out and I did what I could. Yeah, you absolutely did, man. Now, uh, kind of comparing things then to the way things are 30 years from now, obviously you've seen things change in a way that pitchers get treated now, all these innings caps and developments and stuff like that. <laughs> 
what what do you think is the major difference between the way you were treated during that season to the way things are now with the you know with, with pitchers and the way they're being handled? <laughs> hey John, that's another good question. I you know back in the late seventies or early eighties, I mean it, the the uh, money that people were paid back then was like pennies to what they're being paid now. So if you were hurt. You just wouldn't tell anybody. You just go out and play. But uh, nowadays, the way the you know the money is, the salaries these guys are being paid. You know, with they could have a little small injury, that, you know they're not going to play. But back when I played, we went out there and we played. No, you absolutely did, man. Now, now looking back, did you end up did you end up hurting your arm after that season? No, I don't think I. Well, I tell you what, I never told anybody this, but. I uh, I think the last five years that I pitched, you know, I had a sore arm, but I just didn't tell anybody, and uh, I just kept going out there and pitching, and I, you know, I was still strong and still throwing the ball, you know, 90, 92 miles an hour, so I felt good, even though probably today somebody wouldn't do that, you know, they might go on the DL or whatever, but I wanted to play ball, so I went out and played. No, I absolutely did, man, and and what what I, what I think is interesting because you see like you know, kind of the micromanaging of pitchers now that it's like, you know, you see a decrease in velocity, maybe from a start or two. And all of a sudden that pitchers, you know, either sent down or put on a disabled list. They didn't really do that back then. And really as, 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 as uh, recent as the mid eighties pitchers were not treated the way they are now. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how, you know, they see, you know, a guy that throws 95 throws, you know, 91 consistently for a couple starts. And that guy goes on a disabled list. I mean, it's amazing the way things have changed with that. Oh, that's exactly right. I'm just, I'm just, you know, back in the late '70s and early '80s, the, uh, you know, the high salaries and the multi-million-dollar contracts—they weren't there when I played. If a guy was making a million dollars, he was making a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, you know, now today, I don't know what the minimum salary is, but it's probably around four hundred thousand or something. So it's just, uh, yeah, if somebody gets a little hangnail or something, you know. That they're not going to go out and play. Yeah. Now, uh, actually, one an interesting question I wanted to ask you: as you're coming up, because we're kind of seeing nowadays the way pitchers are, you know, maybe babied, maybe a little too much, you know, as as I mentioned with velocity and stuff like that, and the way they look as they throw. Um, tell us a little bit about like you know the throwing programs and stuff that that you were on then. Did you see a drastic difference from the way? Um, you know, let's say your pitching coach and the coordinators and stuff, how do you take care of your arm as opposed to the way pitchers are now? Well, I go back again when I, you know, when I was playing back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was, you know, I don't know what kind of program they have now because I'm really not involved with it. Okay. But I, I know we ran a lot. You know, we did fundamentals day in and day out. And, uh, you know, it could be totally different now. You know, I just haven't been around it. So. No, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, now, do you think do you think that the fact that you were ran out there all, all the time in 1979 led to you maybe not having any further Major League success after that season? No, I don't. I don't think that's correct. Uh, okay. You know, if you're going to give a if you're going to give a guy a ball 31 times, and. Uh, you know, bring it back the next year in spring training. I, after that, I think I I got the ball maybe 
I think I pitched six innings in 1980 spring training. Really? And I think the writing was on the wall there. And, I, you know, it was just a big disappointment. You know, it was a change of management. Uh, you know, it was, just, it was just a bad deal. You know, I, I couldn't figure it out. It was, it just put me down in the dumps. Uh, you know, it was a long haul after that. I mean, I don't think it was fair from the organization. You know, I'm not going to badmouth anybody, but you you just don't give a uh, 20, 21 year old the ball 31 times, and you know they may be expecting you to do big things for them. And the next year in spring training, you only pitch six innings. I mean, that was just a huge disappointment to me. I absolutely agree with you. I think that was terrible, terrible job on their part. I mean, so you 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 really think that the not necessarily the workload of the year before, but the way you were treated after and kind of kind of an afterthought after that season really influenced what happened in your career after that. Oh, definitely. I think it was a change of management. You know, I'm not going to bring names up or anything like that, but it was definitely a change of management. Now, listen, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not fair for anybody to have to go through that. And, uh, you know, obviously, as you go back, you made a brief appearance for the Baltimore Orioles in 1985, was there was there a certain time where maybe you realized that it just wasn't going to happen again, or was that something you kind of just stuck to, thinking there was a chance up until the very end? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, we're in this for the long run. You know, it's uh, you got guys that can spend you know nine, ten years in AAA, and their main goal is to get to the big leagues. You know, after the '79 season, I did that. I had a little brief appearance in '85 with the Orioles. You know, and then after that, I got, you know, traded again. It was just a another whirlwind effect on my part. But, uh, you know, the ultimate goal is to get to the big league. So I was just trying to just stick it out and do the best I could. And, you know, and hopefully things were going to work out for me. Well, listen, I think I think in the end, man, listen, I mean, I was I was a I was a player that, you know, certainly really felt like I had aspirations of making a major. So the fact that, you know, you made it obviously says a lot. It says you, you, had a, you had a ton of talent. So, I mean, you know, listen, obviously things didn't work out the way you had hoped. But, listen, you still, you still have what a lot of people don't have. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, I can go back to my high school playing days. And, you know, my, I think it was my sophomore year in high school, I was invited to a Cincinnati Reds tryout camp. And, uh I went down there and did it. My dad took me down there, and I pitched. And the, scout, the head scout called me over, Tony Rubello. He goes, Phil, if you were eligible for the draft right now, I would draft you in the first round. So, you know, that was the start of it. But, uh, you know, two years out of high school pitching in the big leagues, you know, maybe it was a little bit too soon. Uh, if I, if When I look back at it, if I think that they brought me along too quickly, I would probably say yes. You know, I might have needed a couple more years, but uh, you know what, John? I pitched well in spring training that year. And I'm talking, you know, the Thurman Munson, the Pete Roses, you know, the Concepcions, the Yastrzemskis. That was my era, and I was 20 years old against these guys. That's awesome. <laughs> now, it must be a ridiculous feeling. I mean, uh, hey, um, I was talking to I was talking to my buddy Billy, which you you obviously know very well. He said uh, he said within the last couple of weeks you met you were able to meet up with a former teammate Al Woods. Oh yeah, definitely Al Woods, my teammate in '79 in Toronto, excellent outfielder. And uh, he said uh, Hall of Famer Jim Rice was there, huh? 
Jim Rice was there too. It was yeah, Jim Rice and uh, Al Woods and uh, lots of other great players too. I mean, back in the fifties and sixties. Okay. Yeah, that, that's awesome, man. Hey, listen, I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, I'll be able to speak to you again sometime in the near future. All right, John. I appreciate you having me. Hey, anytime, Phil. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Yep. And that was Bye. that was Phil Huffman, former pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays. I was, and like I said earlier, I mean, we're going to be cutting off at about six minutes or so, taking you to pregame live for the Newark Bears who are playing tonight. And listen, it's a great thing going on. I mean, we, you know, MTR Radio Network, you'd be able to hear a lot of live Newark Bears baseball, which we got some very, very good, uh, some very good analysts and broadcasters and sideline reporters and stuff that are going to give you some great coverage. And uh, listen, it's great having Phil on because uh, he tells he tells a story that you know pr- probably the other side of baseball because we talk about how you know so many pitchers come up with the the promise and you know become disappointments. This was kind of the other side. I mean, this is a guy that came up really, and as I said, at, at age 20, making his major league debut with the Toronto Blue Jays in 1979. And after a year, it was over. They ran him out there every day. And obviously, his record and what happened was a sign of, of that, that the team was not very good. You know, he went 6-18. and 18, He led the American League in losses. The team went 53-109 and 109 in just his third season in the majors. This is essentially an expansion team we're talking about here. And here's a guy who they had faith in. They gave him the ball every fifth day, 31 starts that year. He went, went out there, and like he said, there was about eight or nine no decisions that he had that he had a chance to grab some wins. So if the guy goes, you know, 13-16 and 16 or something like that, it's a lot better than 6-18. and 18. So there was a guy that pitched a little bit better than his record. And what ends up happening is that the next season in spring training, the team goes through a management change. They try to turn the page. They go the other direction. And this guy only gets six innings in, in spring training after making 31 starts the year before. And it starts a spiral of what becomes the end of his career. Obviously, he stuck around in the minors for several years after that. Still had a talent, still had the ability to do it. Made a cameo with the Baltimore Orioles in 1985. But essentially, it was all over after that. And it's not fair for a guy that was just 21 years old to be deprived his chance on a Toronto Blue Jays team that was not very good. This team was not good, good in 1980. They did not regain really any sort of you know, success until Bobby Cox took over and they had the 1985 season. So this was a team that was rebuilding for a couple years after that. Why not run this guy out? Why not give this guy more of a chance than just one season? Because it seems like it was self-sufficient for the Toronto Blue Jays. They, they got what they wanted. They needed a guy to grab the ball every fifth day on a team that was losing 109 games. But when it came to the next year, to pitch the guy six innings in spring training is an absolute joke. And let's be honest, that's an absolute joke that was sad. That does not need to happen. And let's be honest, nowadays, nowadays that would not happen. You know, pitchers are brought up, and this guy was drafted in the second round by the San Francisco Giants. He was traded in the Vita Blue trade, you know, to the to the A's, from the A's to the Blue Jays in a Rico Cardi trade. The guy has a immense amount of talent. And if he's good enough to make the team at age 20 in 1979, he was good enough to get at least a brief appearance on a team in 1980, at least a decent look to see if he can make the rotation in that season. So I think it was a terrible job by the Toronto Blue Jays, and that team stunk for a while after that. 
they didn't regain form until they developed some prospects in the 85 season. And if you check out my Bases Empty blog, I actually did a story about the 1985 Toronto Blue Jays, which was really when they put that together. And a lot of their success had to do with their manager, Bobby Cox, who was not just a Hall of Famer because of what he did for Atlanta, but he really put together a good team, getting that team back to something because it was nothing before that. The Toronto Blue Jays were a joke until Bobby Cox took over there. And it's a shame because, like Phil Huffman says, there's a lot of players that played hard there. And in addition to maybe being a little short talent-wise, this was a team that obviously didn't make the correct managerial decisions, whether it was the on-field manager or the general manager or player development. They made some mistakes there, and that team was bad a lot longer than it really had to be. And, you know, a guy like Phil Huffman who gave it his all, he worked his ass off for 1979 to not get a chance in 1980 was a travesty. And I feel the need to talk about this because it's an absolute, absolute joke. And, you know, speaking to him, you could tell he worked his ass off. You could tell he was where he needed to be in 1979 to make that team. And for him to get six innings in 1980 spring training is an absolute joke. So shame on the Toronto Blue Jays for that. I'm going to hit a couple quick points before we break here. We're going to break at about 6.30, take you live on MTR for the Newark Bears. And if you're listening on the rebroadcast of here, I'm going to come back with another solid hour of baseball talk, opening up the phone lines for you. Right here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Um, just wanted to throw a couple things in. 29-year anniversary a couple days ago of the Pine Tar game. And if you listen to the intro to Passball Show, you know about you know, you know about what goes on with that and, you know, George Brett going crazy. And a, really the first instance of an umpire's decision being overruled in a protest. And look it up. How many other times has that happened? You know, it's really a, a kind of something that happens in history that nobody really looks back on. But an umpire's decision on the field, not through instant replay, was overruled by American League President Lee McPhail. And I think it was the right call. But name one other time that that's happened in history. I think that's something that should be remembered. If you go out, check out Bases Empty blog. I wrote a you know pretty decent article about that, summarizing what happened there. And obviously for those of us who were around in 1983, we, we all saw what happened. But a couple of quick things. Melky Cabrera, terrible job uh, calling out the Braves for letting him go. And uh, Zach Greinke will be traded before July 31st. Uh, we'll break, be back in a little bit on the rebroadcast, take you right into Newark Bears baseball right here on the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Passball than any fan of any team. Tune into the Passball Show for real baseball talk. This is John Pielli. I'm the host of the Passball Show live Thursdays on the MTR Network from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Listen to my interviews with former players, personal analysts, as well as some real opinion of everything going on in the game of baseball. Yeah, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We are obviously on the rebroadcast version of the Passball Show. Um, you know, sorry, we, we cut off. We went into Newark Bears baseball on the live broadcast, but we're going to be back here. I'm actually going to open up the phone lines, let you know if you uh, – I apologize about that. We're definitely not phone lines. But whatever, we're back. I'm going to knock out probably a good solid half hour of some baseball talk, everything going on in baseball. And like I said, some of the major things going on right now are, are the potential trade of Zach Greinke, which is absolutely going to happen. Nothing that could happen to keep it from happening. I honestly think that the Brewers are going to hit a point that if you know Doug Melvin's going to regret 
saying that he's definitely trading. It's lowering the return. And I don't know, maybe he's given up. It has to be. And I think that's pretty interesting to see because it's, it's something that's going to happen that you may not get back the package that you wanted. And I do think that that's pretty interesting to see as we go on, you know, through the, uh, you know, the last couple of days before the trading deadline. There's going to be some more moves. I actually see this being one of the more active trading deadlines, you know, as we've seen history. You know, like a lot of years, maybe not much goes along. But look at how many teams are in it. And I do believe that the Baltimore Orioles still consider themselves a potential team, especially since they're ahead of Boston, they're ahead of Tampa, they're ahead of the Toronto Blue Jays right now. But going back, you look at Toronto, and I don't think Toronto's ready this season despite some of the recent struggles of the team. Romero, JPR, and Sibia has not had a good season. But I do think the Blue Jays are going to make a push. I don't know if they're in it on the Granke sweeps. I don't know if they're in it maybe for a Ryan Dempster, or maybe they're looking for another bat. But I think it's interesting. I do like the trade they actually made with the uh, with the Houston Astros, adding J.A. Happ, adding Brandon Lyon. They added a couple pieces that could help them. Happ, at the very least, is a starter that's able to you know go out there every fifth day and help this team out. And really, what's going on with them? Listen, I don't this the year. I said you know in preseason that potentially this was a year that could be make or break for the Toronto Blue Jays. I think it's interesting to see how it works out. No. I honestly don't know what to expect when it comes to this team. But I do think that they're buyers. I really think that they could potentially want something here as the trading deadline's approaching. And that that's, that has to be heard. It's going to be interesting to see how it works out because I do see this team, you know, maybe adding a piece here. And they consider themselves a team that could catch the Baltimore Orioles. And if they catch the Orioles, they're all of a sudden in a wild card race. They're in it with the Oaklands, who's another surprise team of this year. They're in it with the Chicago White Sox, who nobody really thought was gonna, you know, be as well as they play as well as they've played. Obviously, the White Sox have had their success for a couple different reasons. Jake Peavy, Adam Dunn, they really, you know, solidified the nucleus of, that, of this team. And I think if there's any Cinderella or surprise team that may be out there that you know is worthy of what they've done, it's the Chicago White Sox. I see them being a playoff team. They've proved me wrong. You know, I saw they had a lot of issues. They had some problems coming into this season. We didn't know what they were going to get out of Adam Dunn. They didn't know what they were going to get out of Jake Peavy, especially with the amount of money he's being paid. The bullpen didn't really have an answer. They had no closer. You know, they got, you know, guys like Santiago and Reed, they, you know, Jesse Crane, Matt Thornton. They didn't have a solidified bullpen. And you throw on top of it a rookie manager in Robin Ventura who had not managed a game at any level. He didn't appear on anybody's coaching staff. The guy was an assistant coach for a high school team prior to this season. And he took over as the manager. So there was a lot of questions coming into this season. But the White Sox have, you know, honestly, they've, they've got me in. I think this is a playoff team. And looking at Detroit and their resurgence and the fact that they've gone out there and they've been buyers. They added Infante and Sanchez, like I mentioned, yeah excuse me, mentioned on the first hour of the show, listen, the Tigers are going to win that division. They are that good. You know, let's, let, you know, it's so easy we forget about Prince Fielder and Justin Verlander and Miguel Cabrera. That team's good. They're going to they're gonna win games. They're taking that division. But I don't think the White Sox are out of it when it comes to a wild card. And you throw the Oakland A's in, who, listen, I think everybody expects, similarly to the New York Mets, similarly to perhaps the Baltimore Orioles, I think, Similarly to the San Diego Padres of 2010, 
I think a lot of us expect to see the Oakland A's kind of just fall off the face of the earth. Well, they just went out there and swept the New York Yankees at home in a place where they get no support. Nobody goes out to Oakland. Nobody comes out to the Oakland Coliseum to see the Oakland Athletics play. They're playing their home games in front of nobody, and nobody cares about them over there. And they're going out there winning games. They could sweep the New York Yankees at home. I think that's very impressive. And, and honestly, a lot of the credit to the Oakland A's goes to their manager, Bob Melvin, who was in the sweepstakes to become the manager of the New York Mets. He was in the Mets organization, and he had, the job ends up going, obviously, to Terry Collins. But listen, this is a guy who I wasn't sold on. I wasn't sold on Bob Melvin as a manager. He had managed in Seattle. He managed in Arizona and actually got the team better at points before fading off. But this is a guy who actually deserves a little credit. Is he the manager of the year in the American League? Well, listen, I think you have to look at where the teams are at the end of the year. You match the A's up against the White Sox, against the Orioles, and see, really, is one of those teams in the playoffs? If one of them are, that's the manager of the year. You know, it's either him, Showalter, or Ventura. But, listen, based on pure talent, the Oakland A's got nothing. Yoannis Cespedes has done well. He was hurt a little bit. But their best offensive player is Josh Reddick. And there's a drop-off after him and after Reddick and Cespedes. They don't have a catcher. They don't have a shortstop. Brandon Inge is playing third base for them. The Tigers released him. Jamile Weeks has not gotten the job done. They don't really have a steady first baseman. Their outfield situation outside of Cespedes is, and, and Reddick is not very good. You know, they're running guys like Seth Smith, who has struggled, and Johnny Gomes out there in the outfield. Remember, they signed Manny Ramirez to start the season. This, this is a team that doesn't have a lot of offense. And they got some young pitching. You know, a guy like Tommy Malone has done pretty well for them. You know, Ryan Cook has done a very good job as a closer. They've gotten some surprises in there. Bartolo Colon has given them innings. He gives them a chance to win. And I mentioned in my blog about Travis Blackley. Travis Blackley was a guy who a couple of years ago was in Mets camp as a non-roster invitee looking to get a couple outs in the seventh inning. And he didn't make the team. Obviously, he was let go in the organization and has actually returned to the majors with the Oakland A's making seven starts for them. He's not in a rotation right now, but he's gotten a job done. So the A's are kind of riding a lot of good things for them. And I don't know if they're hitting their pinnacle. They're not hit, Maybe they're hitting their top point of the season where – Afterwards, things are going to go downhill. I don't know. But this is a team that I had losing over 100 games this year. And I couldn't say that about the Baltimore Orioles. I couldn't say that about the Chicago White Sox. Yes, I predicted those teams would do bad. But I saw the Oakland A's as having potentially the worst team in baseball based on talent. And obviously, I look like an idiot now because this is a team that's seven games over 500. This is a team that's a couple games behind the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim for a playoff spot. And that being said, obviously they deserve some credit. This is a team that has gotten the job done. And are they going to continue? Are they going to go out there and acquire Zach Greinke? No, nah, probably not. Because obviously the plan for Billy Bean is to build this team up for the future. I do think they're playing with a little bit of house money, saying, hey, maybe we could steal a playoff appearance this year, and maybe some of the younger guys could get a little playoff experience. Good. But I think similarly to the Mets, they're not really looking to make the big move. Will the A's make a trade before the trading deadline? Eh, listen, it's interesting. It's an interesting thought, but I don't think they're going to go dump a bunch of prospects for Zach Greinke or Carlos Quinton or you know Justin Upton or something like that. I don't think they're going to make a move like that. But I do think, similarly to the way Sandy Alderson and Fred, Fred and Jeff Wilpon 
owed it to the Mets fans to make an investment in a reliever in some way, shape, or form. A fan base deserves it. And more importantly than a fan base, the organization, the players, the manager, the guys that put that uniform on deserve a support, some support from the front office and the ownership and the organization when it comes to building a team. They have done enough to deserve some upgrade in some way, shape, or form. Now, I don't know where it is. I mean, are they going to bring back Houston Street? Probably not. You know, a guy like that is probably not looking likely. Grant Balfour is a guy who has been rumored to be going the other way in a trade. Is probably going to be held on to now. Do they add another starter somehow? Possibly. But I do think that Billy Bean owes it, not so much to the fans, because the fans have not supported this team. Similarly to the Miami Marlins, which I mentioned earlier, the fans have not supported the Oakland A's. They're not out there every day. They're not drawing crowds anywhere near what is worthy of a team that's competing for a playoff spot. So screw the fans. You know, If you cared, you'd be out there. If you're an Oakland A's fan and you live in the area, you'd be going to the freaking stadium every day. So screw you. You ain't doing the job. But the general manager and the ownership owes it to its players and the manager of that team to reinforce the fact that they're trying to win. And every team should be trying to win. Because what do you got if you're not trying to win? Tell me. I mean, if you're going out there just going through the motions, not caring whether you win or lose, what do you got? And then what happens when you win, when you got the Oakland A's and you're you know, that many games over 500 this late into the season. Billy Bean should wake up within the next couple days before the trading deadline and make a move for something. It doesn't have to be the big-time player. It doesn't have to be the all-star. It doesn't have to be the Cy Young-type pitcher. It should be for something that could help the team in the near future. And Billy Bean should wake up right now and make a move. That's really all I have to say about that. Going back... Obviously, the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, Ron Santo, Barry Larkin, among several others to make the Hall of Fame, including uh, longtime broadcaster Tim McCarver. And this opened up a thing in my blog, which I was interested in trying to get some feedback on. Ron Santo, decent numbers. Are they Hall of Fame numbers? I think they're borderline. And I'm, I, th- I think it's safe to say that they're borderline good enough to make the Hall of Fame. But every time this happens, you always go into the discussion about what players are similar, what players aren't in the Hall of Fame that had close enough numbers, and why aren't they in. And unfortunately, that leads the door open to put more players in a Hall of Fame that probably don't belong. Now, I said very clearly, and I've said this from the second that Barry Larkin was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame, if Barry Larkin is in, Alan Trammell's got to be in because the numbers are that close. Alan Trammell and Barry Larkin were the same player over the duration of their career. And you know what? They both won the same amount of World Series. They both essentially had the same numbers. They both pretty much did the same thing throughout their career. And if Barry Larkin is a Hall of Famer, which I agree he is, so is Alan Trammell. And there's no no way around it. But as, as you move forward, and I could talk about Alan Trammell all day, you look at the stats, they're pretty damn close. They're similar. They're both Hall of Famers. 
couple guys come up when it comes to Ron Santo. And Ron Santo, if you don't know his career stats, 277 career average, 342 home runs, 1,331 RBIs, 2,223 games played, 2,254 hits, 1,138 runs scored, 365 doubles, 67 triples. All right? You got that? Good. Now, I'm, I'm looking through comparable players who had similar careers. A guy like Ken Boyer spent most of his career with the St. Louis Cardinals. Of course, you know he finished his career with the New York Mets in the mid to late 60s. But he had a very good career. He was, you know, part of a World Series. Actually, I believe part of a World Series championship in 64. And he hit 287, which is better than Santo. 282 homers, 1,141 RBIs. 2,034 games, 2,143 hits, 1,104 runs scored, 318 doubles, 68 triples. Now listen, if you were going to say which player had the better career, Boyer or Santo, you'd probably say Santo. But does this open the door for Ken Boyer to be a Hall of Famer? I will throw out one reason why it should be considered. Boyer missed two, three seasons due to military service time. And obviously, Santos' career ended shortly due to, you know, knee injuries and stuff like that. But what would Ken Boyer have been had he not gone into service? Maybe you put three more top seasons. Because if you look at the, his best seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals, year in and year out, he was amongst the best third baseman in the game of baseball. And that was around the time that Santo was playing towards the end. They had a little bit of parallel. Boyer played before. Santo started in 1960. I think Boyer finished in the mid to late 60s, 67, 68. But the bottom line is their careers were kind of similar. Boyer was an excellent defensive third baseman, just as good as Santo. And he was a very good player. He was a one part of the face of the St. Louis Cardinals through the first 10 years of his career. Obviously, he declined a little bit after that. And I think that should be noted. And that's the reason why he falls a little bit short. But he's a guy that should be considered. Another guy who actually, I will tell you why he's, he should not be considered after, actually had better numbers except for one distinctive stat. And that was longtime Yankees third baseman Greg Nettles. And listen, nobody's trying to say that Greg Nettles is a Hall of Famer. But considering what I said about Santo and his stats, Here's Greg Nettles. 390 home runs, 1,314 RBIs, 2,700 games, 2,225 hits, 1,193 runs scored. Now, most of the categories, obviously home runs, runs scored, games played, all more than Santo, not as many RBIs, not as many runs scored. But the distinction, the reason that Greg Nettles is not a Hall of Famer is his batting average. The guy hit just 248 for his career. Now, when you're thinking about the late 70s Yankees, and actually Greg Nettles really was one of the first moves that George Steinbrenner made, bringing him over um, to play third base. It was really one of the foundations of the franchise, along with Thurman Munson. And then obviously the team got better with guys like Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson. But guy, you know, Greg Nettles really got the thing started with the Yankees and was as good of a player if not better than Santo in his prime. But the thing is, the guy never hit much for an average. He was more of a power hitter, but didn't hit much for an average. Was as good of a defensive third baseman? Absolutely. You know, you talk about guys making, you know, defensive plays at third base. You say, hey, 
That was a Brooks Robinson type play. That was a Greg Nettles type play. That's as good of a defender as Greg Nettles was. And that should be noted. But he falls short because of his batting average. And and if you're looking at what, what you should compare him to, what do you compare a third baseman in that time to? You compare him to a Mike Schmidt, a George Brett, a Brooks Robinson. Now, Schmidt and Brett played afterwards. Yes, that's true. Robinson, obviously, you don't get any better defensively than Brooks Robinson. Harmon Killebrew started out as a third baseman. So those are the kind of guys you compare to. But listen, Ron Santo making it to the Hall of Fame is something that's very interesting. I really think it's interesting because that opens the door to some other guys. But I do think Boyer falls short. I think Nettles falls short. And, you know, as good of players as they were, Boyer was an all-time Cardinal. He deserves his number retired. Nettles was an all-time Yankee. You know, he, he may or may not deserve his number retired. But those guys fall short when it comes to the Hall of Fame. So, past ball show, MTR Radio Network, another 10 minutes or so. This is the rebroadcast, as obviously the live broadcast took you right into Newark Bears baseball on MTR Radio. And uh, getting ready for next week, where I'm going to be joined by former, I'm sorry, by not former, I'm used to saying former, but uh, current Lakewood Blue Claws first baseman Chris Duffy, who's a prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies organization. I got some other guests coming on in the future. I definitely uh, do want to set up some good things. As soon as I get some other guests, I'm going to call them out. Check out johnpelli.com, mtrmedia.com, and I'll keep you focused on some of the guests we got coming into the past ball show as we're finishing off this baseball season as we get towards the trading deadline, July 31st, August. We're seeing what teams are going to hang around, what teams are going to fade away. Obviously, the first team to give up and kind of get ready for 2013 is the New York Mets. As they obviously, you know, When are they going to win a game? Let's be honest. When is this team going to win a freaking game? Is that that much to ask for? I mean, yes, you see the white flag. You see you guys have quit. Can you win a freaking game? Maybe this time next week we'll talk about a Met victory, something that they seem to forgot how to do. But what other teams are going to throw in the white flag? What other teams are going to give up for this season? We'll see. Lots to go over. Certainly the trading deadline, what teams are going to be buyers, what teams are going to be sellers. Listen, you know, are the, are the Mets sellers? No. And I think it's fair to say that they're not looking to trade David Wright. David Wright's going to get extended. He's going to be a Met, hopefully for life. But what else do they got? Nobody wants Jason Bay. Yoan Santana's hurt. And not that I would suggest trading him, but even if he was health, you know, even if he was healthy, but he's not there to trade. You're not going to trade R.A. Dickey. So the Mets are not selling anything. In fact, Maybe a guy that could have been sold, Frank Francisco, is still freaking hurt. So he's not going anywhere. And and listen, it's not worth it to trade Scott Hairston or Tim Burdak or John Roush. I know Met fans like to say, hey, get rid of these guys. Let's see some younger players. What are you going to get that's even worth it? Honestly, I think Scott Hairston could be part of the 2013 Mets. Burdak, listen, maybe he goes as a free agent. Maybe he becomes an option. I don't know. And John Roush, what are you going to get back? Are you even going to get a team to take him? Even if you pay the rest of his contract, they're not going to give you anything for him. So this thought about selling every time your team's out of it doesn't always work. It's not always possible. But moving on to other teams, 
The Atlanta Braves, I don't think a lot of people have given Atlanta Braves any credit this year. This is a team that I actually thought was going to struggle. I saw the Braves kind of going downhill after what happened in September of 2011. They had a historic September collapse, which doesn't get any bit of notice because of what happened simultaneously with the Boston Red Sox. And there's no, obviously, we don't look at that because what happened to the Red Sox? They did worse. But I saw some concerns coming into this season for the Atlanta Braves. And with a team that didn't make major additions, they've done a pretty damn good job. And they deserve some credit. This is a team that could be a playoff team. And they've been looking for a starting pitcher. You know, Ryan Dempster's probably not going to Atlanta. But the Braves will make a move. This time next week, we'll be talking about a pitcher that was acquired by the Atlanta Braves. And how about Ben Sheets? Where the heck did he come from? You're talking about a guy that <laughs> that was out of baseball last year. Obviously, his season in 2010 with the A's was cut short. And he goes in there and he throws two scoreless outings. And he looks like he very may very well be gaining the form that he had before his major injuries. This may be the Milwaukee Brewers fan sheets that the Atlanta Braves have in their rotation now. And they could use it. They definitely can Tommy Hansen, you don't know what you're going to get out of a full season of him. He broke down a little bit at the end of last year. Tim Hudson, you know, as well as he's pitched for the Braves, and he's been a very good acquisition for them over the last several years. You never know when his arm's going to go out. So the Braves do need some stability in that rotation. Jair Jurgens is up there now. Brandon Beachy, who was off to a very good start, is out for the season. So the Braves will be adding a starter. You don't worry too much about their bullpen. Kimbrell has been great. Johnny Venters is hurt. O'Flaherty has pitched well. They got enough in the bullpen to get the job done. But do they get a bat? Interesting. It really is interesting. Should they add a bat? You know, a guy like uh, Michael Bourne on the last year of his contract. Could the Braves toggle him out there to maybe get another power bat in that lineup? I think that's all things that got to be considered. I think it's interesting stuff. I think it's stuff that we got to think about. We definitely got to think about it. But I, I think the Braves are they're in it. If the Atlanta Braves were in the postseason at the end of this year, the only thing that's holding me back to believe that their playoff team is Freddie Gonzalez. Freddie Gonzalez struggled as a manager of the, the Florida Marlins. He obviously, listen, you know, maybe the teams weren't built the best for him. Obviously, the team sided with Handley Ramirez over him, which I think was an absolute joke. So things didn't work out with the Marlins. He never got them to the playoffs. He goes his first year taking over for the legendary Hall of Fame manager, Bobby Cox, who I mentioned earlier in this program. He takes over for him, has a team that's going to the playoffs. There's no question about it. There is nothing stopping the Atlanta Braves from making the playoffs. And they have a historic September collapse, which is up there with what happened with the Boston Red Sox of that year. It's up there with the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies. It's up there with the 2007 New York Mets as the greatest collapse of all time. So you have some doubts about Freddie Gonzalez as a manager. And you absolutely do. And that may be the only thing holding this team back. And actually, I do want to get a hold of Dan Schlossberg. I want some, uh, some more perspective on this. Because what do the Braves look like going into August and September? I think talent-wise, they got it. They can easily make one of the two wild cards in the National League. But does the manager have the ability to do it? And that's going to be a very, very interesting question. 
Now, going back to tonight, if you're a Met fan, obviously you're going to be out there, maybe not looking for a team to make its playoff push, but you're out there to see a young pitcher. And you go out there, and you have the opportunity to see Matt Harvey pitch. And I saw him throw a little bit in spring training. The guy's got a talent. Obviously, he's a good pitcher. Obviously, he could be something very good. We'll see. Maybe he throws the next 10 starts or so and throws some life into this team. But I think a lot of Mets fans want to turn on the TV, go out, see the Arizona game in Arizona, where the Mets start an 11-game road trip and see the debut of Matt Harvey, which I will be seeing when I get home tonight. But um, listen, I want to take a couple minutes to thank my guests for today. Chris Bando, great job, former catcher for the Cleveland Indians. I want to thank Phil Huffman, former pitcher in 1979 for the Toronto Blue Jays. Some very good stuff going on here. Passball show, MTR Radio Network. A lot of stuff going on as we're going into the trading deadline this year. And uh, get ready for next week. Chris Duffy, amongst others, going to be guests on this show. Passball show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks a lot for tuning in, guys. Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- Put that in. I don't... So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry? Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Tune in to Joe Bielli's basketball show. Hosted by a guy called Joe Bielli. Tune in to Joe Bielli's basketball show.